Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Praying for Peace, the Fifth Anniversary of the Iraq War, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 30th, 2008. Last week marked the fifth anniversary of the invasion and occupation of Iraq on March the 19th, 2003. It will take decades to learn whether Iraq evolves into the first democratic government among the 22 Arab states, or whether it disintegrates and destabilizes the Middle East even further. But this much is crystal clear. After five years of war, the human toll has been catastrophic. The economic costs have been stratospheric. And the geopolitical consequences, as many people predicted, have been tragic. As the Iraq War enters its sixth year, there's no exit strategy and no end in sight. The war has cost over $500 billion, or about $275 million per day. The Department of Defense counts nearly 4,000 American soldiers dead and 60,000 wounded. More American soldiers died in the year 2007 than in any single year since the war began. Identifying how many Iraqis have died is complex and controversial, but some studies suggest that at least a million Iraqis have died, more than 600 people every day since the war began. Four million Iraqis have been made refugees. As in all wars today, innocent civilians have suffered the most. What might our world look like today if the United States, in a preemptive and unilateral decision, purely from motives of self-interest and international security, had invested that $500 billion in the Muslim world for health care and hospitals, schools and electricity, micro-enterprise and cultural institutions? Or what if we had spent the money on our own citizens to help those with no health insurance, fund social security, develop new sources of renewable energy, invest in schools, science, and education, or retrain displaced workers who have been uh, unemployed from a fiercely competitive global economy. Today, far too many people suffer the ravages of war. As Jeffrey Sachs observes in his book, The End of Poverty from the Year 2005, in 1910, a leading British pundit, Normal Angle, wrote a book called The Great Illusion, which argued that national economies had become so interdependent, so much part of a global division of labor, that war among the economic leaders had become unimaginably destructive. War, Angle warned, would so undermine the network of international trade that no military venture by a European power against another could conceivably lead to economic benefits for the aggressor. He surmised that war itself would cease once the costs and benefits of war 
were more clearly understood. Engel was correct about the economic devastation of war, but as Sachs observes, he grossly underestimated human irrationality. Just a few years after he published his book, World War I, A Great Depression, and then World War II unleashed catastrophic consequences, economic and otherwise, for all the world. Right now, there are about 10 so-called major wars in the world, defined by the United Nations as wars that inflict at least 1,000 military deaths per year. In addition, there are about 20 lesser conflicts. But things are worse than the UN criterion might suggest, because it used to be that wars killed mainly the professional combatants. In World War I, for example, only about 5% of casualties were civilian. Today, more than 75% of war casualties are non-combatants. For these millions of people, the world is very unsafe. In Sudan's western Darfur region, Africans are systematically killing Africans in an interstate war. Two million people out of a population of four million have been displaced. Their homes have been razed, their wells poisoned, their subsistence agricultural economy ruined, their women systematically raped and branded, their villages destroyed. All this on top of 20 years of drought and famine that the Sudanese government has wielded as a weapon of war. Estimates vary, but about 300,000 to 500,000 black African Muslims have been killed by the Sudan government, both the army and the police, and by the Janjaweed militia that they've funded, trained, complete with graduation exercises, armed, and closely collaborated with in attacks. The most underreported war certainly relative to its death toll, has been the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly Zaire. This war has involved at least nine other African nations since 1998. According to a major mortality survey by the International Rescue Committee that it published in January 2008, conflict and humanitarian crisis in the Democratic Republic of Congo have taken the lives of an estimated 5.4 million people since 1998 and continue to leave as many as 45,000 dead every month. With a population of about 50 million Congolese from 200 different ethnic tribes, that's 10% of the population. A comparative figure for our own country would be almost 30 million deaths. Millions more Congolese have been displaced or fled to countries that are barely more stable. In the spring of 2003, I lectured at the Evangelical Theological Seminary in Osijek, Croatia. Twelve years earlier, in June 1991, Croatia declared its independence from Yugoslavia. The Serbian government responded by surrounding the city of Vukovar on all four sides so that people couldn't escape. 
Tanks thundered down residential neighborhoods. Combat raged from house to house. Vukovar epitomized a hellish war that, as a student of mine put it, had no rules. It fell to the Serbs on November 18, 1991. Since Vukovar was only about 20 minutes from the seminary campus, a student took me there. As I walked through its streets that spring, trees grew out of what used to be living rooms and kitchens. At the train station, I scooped up a handful of shrapnel that now sits on my bookshelf. Vukovar provided one of the best documented and thoroughly investigated cases of horrific war crimes. Today, web pages feature photos of soldiers proudly displaying the decapitated heads of the enemy. Of special note was the case of the Vukovar Hospital. On November 20th, 1991, the Serbs raided the hospital and loaded up nearly 300 patients, medical staff, and civilians. They drove these Croatians outside of town a few kilometers to a place called Avkara, where they slaughtered them and then dumped them into a mass grave. Today on that road to Avkara, signs still warn you about landmines. As I stood silently in the sweltering sun by that mass grave in Avkara, I felt overwhelmed. What did my two seminary students who were from Vukovar remember of all this? How had it scarred their psyches or formed their thoughts of the gospel and God? What were the busloads of children who came here for field trips told? Or what did the elderly people from the capital city of Zagreb four hours away think and feel where they came here to make their peace with history? The wars in Iraq, Darfur, Congo, and the former Yugoslavia, and those in Chechnya, Palestine, Rwanda, Kashmir, and around the world, didn't have to happen. They weren't inevitable, and they don't have to continue. They indict our failure of international will, political imagination, moral integrity, and basic goodwill toward fellow human beings. Christians are biased people, or at least they should be. The words of Jesus in this week's gospel make this clear. Three times he blesses his disciples with the words, Peace be with you. John chapter 20, verses 19, 21, and 26. He then sends them out with that same message of peace for all the world, telling them, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Followers of Jesus wish God's peace to every human being. We favor all that promotes human life, health, and wholeness, what the Jews call shalom. We have an unapologetic bias toward helping the poor, the weak, the marginal, and the vulnerable for whom peace is only a distant dream. And conversely, we deplore all that promotes death, destruction, and human degradation. The psalm this week reminded me that you know a good prayer when you hear it. 
Our shortest prayers are often our best prayers. They tend to be authentic and heartfelt, shorn of tired cliches and pious platitudes. The writer Anne Lamont says that she has prayer down to one single word, help. And so the psalmist utters a prayer notable for its brevity, brevity, tenderness, and its power. It's just four words, and you can pray it at any time, at any place, for any reason. In Psalm 16, verse 1, he prays, Lord, keep me safe. The psalmist's prayer implicitly acknowledges what we know from experience, that for far too many people, our world is not a safe place. Peace, both human and divine, has eluded too many people. For many, the world is a horror of devastation and destruction, vulnerability and sorrow. In a favorite hymn of mine, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther admitted that our world is filled with devils that threaten to undo us. But the psalmist is confident about the God he worships. He's a God who, quote, will not abandon us, Psalm 16, 7 and 10. In an unsafe world, he's a God of protection, preservation, and refuge. Christian prayer to stop war is both a pastoral duty and a political act. As God has promised never to abandon us, we ought never to abandon the cause of peace and the people who so badly deserve it. We pray for soldiers and civilians alike, for governments and diplomats, for peacemakers and treaty negotiators, for Iraqis and Congolese, Palestinians and Chechnyans, and then we pray too for Americans. Lord, keep us safe. Please don't abandon us. Somehow, some way, dear God, save us from our warring impulses. Keep us safe and bring us peace. For further reflections, see the books by Chris Hedges, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Andrew Basevich, The New American Militarism. Brian Steidel, The Devil Came on Horseback, Bearing Witness to the Genocide in Darfur. And on the Congo, the book by Adam Hochschild, King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. For books this week, I review a book by Carmen Butcher, the translator and editor of a book called Hildegard of Bingen, a spiritual reader, Brewster, Massachusetts, Paraclete Press, 2007, 183 pages. In an age when life expectancy was somewhere around 40, Hildegard of Bingen, who lived from 1098 to 1179, lived a life that was remarkably long and incredibly productive. Carmen Butcher describes Hildegard as an uber-multitasking frau and an authentic polymath. The description fits. 
The Benedictine abbess founded two convents, conducted four preaching tours, wrote at least 400 letters, wrote music in a morality play, supervised illuminated manuscripts, cared for her fellow sisters, and wrote three major theological tomes based upon her famous visions. All of this despite her pronounced feelings of self-doubt, the lack of formal schooling, chronic illnesses that probably included depression and migraine headaches, and the subservient roles that were assigned to women by a male-dominated church and culture. Hildegard of Bingen was born the youngest of ten children to an aristocratic family that lived near Mainz. She started having what she later concluded were divine visions as early as age three. When she was eight, her parents dedicated her to the religious life, and at age 14, she entered the St. Dizibod Abbey at Dizibodenburg. Until her death almost 70 years later, she devoted herself to the life of a Benedictine nun. After keeping her visions to herself for decades, when she was 42, Hildegard says that God told her to write what she had seen and heard. Quote, So now you must give others an intelligible account of what you see with your inner eye and what you hear with your inner ear. Your testimony will help them. As a result, others will learn how to know their Creator. They'll no longer refuse to adore God. Carmen Butcher descri describes her anthology as a Hildegard 101. After describing the life of Hildegard in an introduction, her seven chapters introduce readers to Hildegard's varied works, 20 songs, her morality drama called The Play of the Virtues, selections from her 400 letters, excerpts from her writings about nature and medicine, and then the Book of Divine Works. A short conclusion is followed by an extensive chronology of Hildegard's life. In a bibliography for further reading, and also for listening to recordings of Hildegard's music. Carmen Butcher's short work is no substitute for the critical edition of Hildegard of Bingen's works, but it might well provoke curious readers to seek them out after enjoying this fine introduction to one of the most important mothers of the church. Carmen Butcher, Hildegard of Bingen, a spiritual reader. <clears throat> For film this week, I review a documentary, the title of which is called This Film Is Not Yet Rated, from the year 2006. The whole notion of rating films based upon their content is genuinely complex and controversial, especially in the Internet age when anyone can view anything in the privacy of their homes. Should we censor films or let the public censor them by audience response? Or just let the free market work its magic when people vote with their wallets? What are reasonable parameters for artistic expression in the public square? 
Film director Kirby Dick gives a uniformly one-sided view of these questions in his documentary. According to Dick, the Motion Picture Association of America, made famous, or as the case may be infamous, by the high-profile Jack Valenti, represents all that's wrong and unfair about Hollywood from an artist's perspective. The MPAA, he insists, is secretive, arbitrary in its decision, moralistic, defends corporate monopolies in the major studios to the detriment of independent filmmakers, and is harsh on sex while giving graphic violence a free ride. There are, in fact, grounds for all those complaints, but don't look to this film for a serious treatment of such an important topic. This film is not yet rated from the year 2006. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by an early Christian scholar named Prudentius. Prudentius lived from 348 to 413. And in some respects, he might have been the first true Christian scholar who tried to work out his faith in Christian worldview as an intellectual. The poem we've posted this week by Prudentius is actually one of his most famous hymns that's still sung today. It's called, Of the Father's Love Begotten. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds begin to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he. Of the things that are, that have been, in that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. At his word the worlds were framed, he commanded it was done. Heaven and earth and depths of ocean in their threefold order one. All that grows beneath the shining of the moon and burning sun, evermore and evermore. He is found in human fashion, death and sorrow here to know, that the race of Adam's children, doomed by law to endless woe, may not henceforth die and perish in the dreadful gulf below, evermore and evermore. O oh, that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bear the Savior of our race, and the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face, evermore and evermore. This is he whom seers in old time chanted of with one accord, whom the voices of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Now he shines the long expected, let creation praise its Lord, evermore and evermore. O ye heights of heaven, adore him, angel hosts, his praises sing. Powers, dominions bow before him, and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent, every voice in concert sing, evermore and evermore. Righteous judge of souls departed, righteous king of them that live. On the Father's throne exalted, none in might with thee may strive. Who at last in vengeance coming, sinners from thy face shalt drive. Evermore 
endeavor more. Thee let old men, thee let young men, thee let boys in chorus sing. Matrons, virgins, little maidens, with glad voices answering. Let their guileless songs re-echo in the heart its music bring. Evermore and evermore. Christ to thee with God the Father, and O Holy Ghost to thee, hymn and chant with high thanksgiving, in one and unwearied praises be. Honor, glory, and dominion, and eternal victory, evermore and evermore. Prudentius, from the years 348 to 413, of the Father's love begotten. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 30th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.